Okay, praises be to our loving Abba. We are gathered once again to study his words and commands. Today uh, we're going to take a part two of From Christ to Trinity uh, series. So welcome to the Bible History Project. I believe this is BHP 128, if I'm not mistaken. So this is part two. So last week we talked about how Yahushua, when he was here on earth, never taught that he is God. The apostles never taught that he is God. In fact, even the early followers of Yahushua in the first century, the second century, most did not believe or teach that Yahushua is God. However, something happened, and eventually the evolution of thought, not biblical thought, but the evolution of thought uh, with the leadership of the so-called scholars and theologians uh, paved the way in the development of Christ becoming deity, and from there, the concept of the Trinity. So today we're going to look at the evolution of ideas that led to the concept of Yahusha becoming the second person of the so-called Trinity and eventually into a full conception of that concept that Yahusha and Yahuwah and the Holy Spirit formed the Godhead of the Trinity. So what is the Trinity all about? It basically teaches and says in one God there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they are all equal with each other, co-equal, co-eternal, and so the Son is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is also God. That's the teaching of the Trinity, and practically all of Christendom today believes in the Trinity. The Catholic Church believes in the Trinity. The Protestant churches and denominations all believe in the Trinity. However, we followers of Yahushua, we believe and heed the voice of Yahushua HaMashiach. And so what does he teach about the possibility, if at all, about this teaching about the Trinity? Let's read the book of John 17, 1 and 3. Yahushua spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, the only true God, and Yahushua Christ, whom you have sent. I think this passage alone is sufficient to debunk, to debunk the Trinity, because it directly and explicitly contradicts the teaching of the Trinity. What does the Trinity again assert? It teaches and upholds the belief that the Father is equal to the Son, equal to the Holy Spirit, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But take a look at what Yahushua himself, the Son who is in this passage, what does he say? Does he uphold the Trinity? The Son says that they may know you, the only true God, who is the you that he was referring to when he said, you are the only true God. He was referring to to the Father, His Father, and our Father. He says, the Father is the only true God. Now think about that for a moment. If Yahushua, the Son, says the Father is the only true God, what does that mean? It means the Son cannot be God as well. Otherwise, He would contradict Himself, and that would mean Yahushua is a liar. We know Yahushua is not a liar. He is one who speaks the truth, and the truth he speaks, which gives eternal life. The Father is the only true God. So the Son of God disagrees with those 
who propose and expound on the Trinity because the Son says, the Father, not the Son, the Father, not the Holy Spirit, the Father and only the Father is the true God. And so according to Yahushua, he is, uh, he is not God. The Father is the only true God. According to the apostles, the Father is the only true God. According to all the, the Israelites, Yahuwah is the only true God. However, we are not surprised that time will come when there will be those who will present an, the idea or concept that Yahushua is also God. Why? What was foretold by the Apostle Paul? 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4. However, I am afraid that as the snake deceived Eve by its tricks, so your minds may somehow be lured away from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. When someone comes to you telling about another, another Yahushua, whom we didn't tell you about, you're willing to put up with it. When you receive a spirit that is different from the spirit you received earlier, you're also willing to put up with that. When someone tells you good news that is different from the good news you already accepted, you're willing to put up with that too. Can you feel the uh, frustration of Apostle Paul, right? Apostle Paul says, you Corinthians, you're so gullible. You believe every false preacher and false teacher out there. I'm not surprised Apostle Paul says, time will come, you're going to end up believing in a different Yahushua, different from the one we preach. And so these Corinthians, members of the followers of Yahushua, members of the assembly in the first century, they were extremely gullible, easily swayed, easily led by false doctrine. We must be different from the Corinthians. What is the root cause behind the deception? the devil himself. You see, the devil, he will do everything and anything in his power to confuse people, especially if the confusion leads to rejecting and upsetting and causing Yahuwah Abba to be angry. And one of the things that uh, gets Yahuwah Abba angry is idolatry, when people regard someone else other than him to be God. And here's the devil he wants to get his own son, right? The son of Yahuwah against him, making him God. I mean, when you think of devious things, that's right up there, isn't it? And so this is the idea of the snake, the devil himself. He will deceive people and he will deceive many because the Bible says he has deceived the whole world. He will deceive many into believing in a different Yahusha, a Yahusha who is also God. And so during the early days, the early history of the first century Christians, according to historians, what problems did the Corinthian church experience? From the book Erdman's Handbook to the History of Christianity, when we read Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, it becomes clear that many problems faced the church within its own membership. Paul's other letters also reveal controversies, power struggles in the midst of encouragement and growth. Some people tried to mix Christian and non-Christian religious beliefs. The first letter of John speaks of those who once belonged to the Christian community, but had now departed. They denied the true humanity 
of Yahusha, the Christ. So according to this handbook to the history of Christianity, when Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, it was to expose many problems faced by its own membership. What were these problems rooted in? Mixing pagan ideology with Christianity. Mixing the teachings of Yahusha and the apostles with the teaching of Greek philosophers, Roman philosophers, and other theologians. They don't mix together. They're not supposed to be mixed together. Because when you mix the teachings of Yahusha and the theology of pagans, you're going to get a hybrid type of concept, a hybrid type of Yahusha. And that's exactly what they got. This is why there were those who denied the true humanity of Yahusha Christ. Many ideas were floating around, infecting and affecting the faith of the early believers. Because of this, what eventually would happen? Uh, what eventually would happen. Let's continue studying history. So we're going to be reading a lot of excerpts from different historical books to look at the evolution of how Yahusha becomes God and then how it becomes the Trinity. So we're going to read now a book entitled A History of God. This is what it says. Uh, the doctrine that Yahusha had been God in human form was not finalized until the fourth century, the development of Christian belief in the incarnation was a gradual complex process. Yahusha himself certainly never claimed to be God. So according to what we read, this teaching that Yahusha is God in human form, well, that was not finalized until when? The fourth century, 300 years had to pass before it became a creed, a doctrine of the so-called Christian community. 300 years is a long, long, long time, which makes you wonder how could this be accepted as original Christian doctrine? It's not. There are those who make it out and make it appear that the teaching of Yahushua is a man and not God when it comes to his nature and state of being, they make it appear that this doctrine is invented. No, the doctrine that's invented is the one that appeared in the fourth century. That's the invented doctrine. Revealed doctrine is in the first century, found in the Bible, right? Revealed first century Bible. Invented fourth century. It took a while. That's why the Bible says it was a gradual complex process because initially it was nowhere to be found in the thinking of the followers of Yahusha because Yahusha himself Yahusha himself never claimed to be God. When someone called him good, he said, do not call me good. There's only one good who is the father. And so in the first century, followers of Yahusha, there was no conception that Yahusha is God. Let's fast forward to the second century. Let's read systematic theology. The earliest time known at which uh, Jesus, Yahusha, was deified, was after the New Testament writers in the letters of Ignatius at the beginning of the second century. And so after 100 years in the second century, there was one man who kind of stood out of the crowd. He became different from the rest. The rest believed Yahusha was not God. But then this Ignatius guy, 
he steps in and makes a name for himself. He makes a claim that Yahushua could be God in human form. And so in the second century, the seed was planted by who? The devil. That's the second century, right? And who was Ignatius anyways? Who was he? Let's read a history of the Christian church. These Christian writers were thus named because it was long, uh, uh, though erroneously, believed uh, that they were personal disciples of the apostles. I want to pause there for a while. The author is referring to the apostolic fathers, because after the death of the apostles, there were people who were called uh, apostolic fathers because they followed the death of the apostles. And there were those who believed that they were personal disciples of the apostles. But this is erroneous. It's not correct, according to the history. Now, who were these people who were at the forefront of co conducting or creating concepts or theorizing about concepts concerning Yahushua and Christianity? Uh, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, Hermas of Rome, common Christianity, moved in a much simpler range of thought, profoundly loyal to Christ. It conceived of him primarily as the divine revealer of the knowledge of the true God and the proclaimer of a new law of simple, lofty, and strenuous morality. This is the attitude of the so-called apostolic fathers, with the exception of who? Ignatius. And so when we examine the writings of the early Christians, the writings of the so-called apostolic fathers, what do we find in the writings? There's no indication that Yahushua is God. Rather, he is one who reveals the true knowledge about the true God. There's a big difference, right? Yahushua reveals who the true God is. He doesn't say he's a true God. And so even in the writings of the apostolic fathers, it's not found anywhere in their history books. What we find is Yahushua is different from God, except for the writing of one Ignatius of Antioch. What exactly did he write that was so different from the rest? Let's read from a letter that he wrote to the Ephesians chapter 7. There is one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first passable and then impassable, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what he wrote. He wrote and mentions God existing in flesh. That's it. That's all he wrote. And so from there, the idea that Yahushua is God in the flesh, God who became flesh, it becomes, it was planted now in the minds of, of many people. Ignatius was an influential person. And so because he was influential, even though he was only one person, if you're backed up by a power that is beyond yourself, you know you can make that idea go long. It can go long. Uh, it, it can expand to include eventually the whole world remember all it takes is one person right that can be used as an instrument by who the devil and so he plants this idea that yahusha is god existing in 
the flesh. So that was the second century. Let's now fast forward to the third century. What do we find? Let's read in this book, Christianity Through the Centuries, the problem of the relationship between God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, became an acute problem in the church uh, soon after the cessation of persecution. In Western Europe, Tertullian, for example, insisted upon the unity of essence in three personalities as the correct interpretation of the Trinity. Hence, the dispute centered in the eastern section of the empire. It must be remembered that the church has always had to fight Unitarian conceptions of Christ. And so what happened around the third century? So after Ignatius, another character comes into the scene, an influential, an influential one as well. His name is Tertullian. And what concept does he introduce? The unity of essence in three personalities. Does that sound familiar? What does that sound like? Sounds like the Trinity. These are the early conceptions of the idea when put together is the package of the Trinity. And so it started with this concept, unity of essence in three personalities, Trinity. And so this was in the second century. I mean, the third century, the second century, uh, God in human form. There was no concept of Trinity yet in the second century. Third century, Tertullian, he proposes not only is Yahushua God in human form, there is now a trinity. In one unity of essence, there are three personalities. But you know, this is already, this is the third century, right? But you know, this concept of trinity was not invented by Tertullian. No, it's something else. We know it did not come from the Bible. I mean, you cannot find this concept of unity in three personalities. There's no trinity in the Holy Bible. You read it from cover to cover. There's no concept of trinity. However, you will be surprised where the concept comes from. It was not original from Tertullian. It's not original from Christian theologians. Where did it come from? Take a look at this, Babylon. <laughs> Sound familiar? Babylon, right? The ancient Babylonians recognized the doctrine of a trinity or three persons in one God as appears from a composite God with three heads forming part of their mythology and the use of the equilateral triangle also as an emblem of such trinity in, and in unity. This is according to Thomas Dennis Rock, The Mystical Woman and the Cities of the Nations, which he wrote in 1867. So Babylon, Babylon uh, was one of the originators of this concept of three persons in one God. It's not original with Christian theologians. Not only that, take a look at this, Greece. Does Greece have a trinity too? In the fourth century BC. I mean, when did Tertullian come into the scene? It was... Uh, Third century AD, right? And so this is fourth century BC. So it's like, it's like 700 years before. In the fourth century BC, Aristotle wrote, all things are three and thrice is all. And let us use this number, it's number three, in the worship of the gods. For as the Pythagoreans say, 
everything and all things are bounded by threes for the end, the middle, and the beginning have this number in everything. And these compose the number of the Trinity. That's according to Arthur Weigel, paganism in our Christianity. So you can see the pagan roots, the pagan influence of this idea of the Trinity. And so it's not original Christian thinking. No, it comes from paganism because the Babylonians have their Trinity. Greece, they also have their Trinity. And the theologians like Ignatius and Tertullian, they were well-educated, well-informed. And that's the danger of mixing, mixing scholarly theological thinking from the Greek and Roman world and mixing it with pure gospel and pure Christian thinking. That's what happens. But it's not just Babylon and Greece. It's even found in Egypt. The hymn to Amun decreed that no God came into being before him, Amun, and that all gods are three, Amun, Re, Ptah, and there's no second to them. Hidden is his name as Amon. He is red in the face and, in, and his body is Ptah. This is a statement of Trinity, the three chief gods of Egypt subsumed into one of them, Amon. Clearly the concept of organic unity within plurality got an extraordinary boost with this formulation theologically in a crude form. It came strikingly close to the later Christian form of plural Trinitarian monotheism. This is from Simpson Najovitz from the book Egypt, uh, from the, the journal article, Egypt trunk of the tree. And so we have Babylon, we have Greece, we have Egypt, and not that we go back even three thousands of years before, we have the religion of India. For those who are familiar with the religion of India, and this is what it says, the Puranas, one of the Hindu Bibles of more than 3,000 years ago, this is a long time ago, contain the following passage. It, you can read from there, O ye three lords, I know that I recognize only one God. Inform me, therefore, which of you is the, tree, the true divinity, that I may address to him alone my adorations? The three gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, becoming manifest to him, replying, Learn, O devotee, that there's no real distinction between us. What to you appears such is only the semblance. The single being appears under three forms, by the acts of creation, preservation, and destruction, but he is one. Hence, the triangle was adopted by all the ancient nations as a symbol of a deity. Three was considered among all the pagan nations as the chief of the mystical numbers because, as Aristotle remarks, it contains within itself a beginning, a middle, and an end. Hence, we find it's designating some of the attributes of almost all the pagan gods. So even the religion of India, together with Greece and Egypt and Babylon and other pagan nations with their pagan gods, they have something in common. It is this idea that in one God, there are three persons. Do you see the influence then of paganism creeping into Christian thought and Christian belief producing 
the hybrid Trinity or Trinitarian God. And so after Tertullian borrowing from pagan concepts, mixing it with Christian belief, coming up with this three-in-one idea, Tertullian, in the, let's go now to, he was in the third century. Let's fast forward now to the fourth century, 318, 319 uh, AD, from the book Christianity Through the Centuries. In 318 or 319, Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, uh, discussed with his presbyters the unity of the Trinity. He got this from who? Tertullian. Where did Tertullian get that? The gospel? No. The apostles? No. Where did he get that from? The pagans. Pagan philosophy, pagan religion. Got that from there. And so he introduces the unity of the Trinity. Here comes a bishop of Alexandria, Alexander. He has this unity of the Trinity in his mind. One of the presbyters, Arius, an ascetic scholar and popular preacher, attacked the sermon because he believed that it failed to uphold a distinction among the persons in the Godhead. Arius, who was backed by Eusebius of Nic Nicomedia to be distinguished from Eusebius of Caesarea, and a minority of those present, insisted that Christ had not existed from all eternity, but had a beginning by the creative act of God prior to time. He believed that Christ was of a different heteros, essence or substance, than the Father. Because of the virtue of his life and his obedience to God's will, Christ was to be considered divine. But Arius believed that Christ was a being created, created out of nothing, subordinate to the Father and of a different essence from the Father. He was not co-equal, co-eternal, oh, or co-substantial with the Father. To Arius, he was divine, but not deity. And so in 318, 319 AD, after Tertullian in the fourth century now, right? Here comes a bishop by the name of Alexander, and he discusses with his presbyters the unity of the Trinity. This was a sermon. After he preached the sermon, someone objected. His name, Arius. What was the belief of Arius? The unity of the Trinity cannot be true because the Christ is not co-equal. He is not co-eternal. He is not co-substantial with the Father. To Arius, Yahushua the Christ was divine, but he's not deity because he was created by Yahuwah Abba. You see the difference. And so we have here a friction. Uh, we have here some opposition now. It's a good thing he stood up. But what happened when Arius rejected and opposed the belief of the unity of the Trinity? I, you know, I mean, when we go back and look at the history of it all, we can see the fingerprints of the devil. He's lobbying all this behind the scenes. He's controlling everything behind the scenes. And we have here Arius who wanted to oppose it. But eventually what happened because of this controversy? Let's read this book, Christianity Through the Centuries Again. The controversy became so bitter that Alexander had Arius condemned by a synod. Arius then fled uh, to the friendly palace of Eusebius, the bishop of Nicomedia. Since the dispute centered in Asia Minor, it threatened the unity of the empire as well as that of the church. And so this theological battle, battle about the... Uh, unity of the trinity 
it was so controversial, its effects were felt throughout the empire because it threatened the unity of the empire. And when the unity of the empire is threatened, you can bet someone's attention is highly, is alerted, right? Whose attention was that? Who do you think was riled up and very much concerned about this theological controversy? Yep, let's read from the book, A Short History of Christian Doctrine. The emperor, who was that? Constantine. The emperor therefore stepped into the controversy and extended invitations for a great council to be held at Nicaea in 325 AD. There you go. And so when this controversy was threatening the unity of the empire, the emperor had to do something about that. And so he called for a council. And so all the bishops would gather in a council to discuss this debate about the unity of the Trinity. And it would be held in Nicaea. It was held in 325 AD. Now, who is this emperor? What do we know about him? Let's read uh, a short history of Christian doctrine. The first emperor to become a Christian. That's who he is. Constantine had basically no understanding whatsoever of the questions that were being asked in Greek theology. I want to pause there for a while. You notice the debate was not centered on biblical teachings. Where did they take the debate? Where? What became the emphasis of their argument points? What did they use for their argument? Greek theology, not biblical teachings. So they went outside the Bible to argue what the Bible presents, right? They went outside the Bible, went to Greek theology. You know, when you do that, what are we doing again? We're mixing paganism and Christian teaching. We don't want to do that. That leads to a lot of problems like Easter and Christmas, so on and so forth, right? So that's the, the root cause. And so it was asked, it was based on theology. This emperor who doesn't know anything about theology or the Bible, he, he was the first emperor to become Christian. In the controversy over the doctrine of the Trinity, he saw nothing more than unnecessary bickering of theologians, which might best be avoided by eschewing all speculation and by living together in love and harmony. That's, I guess, a good side about Constantine. Uh, at the same time, Constantine was concerned about keeping or restoring ecclesiastical peace. After all, the church had an important service to perform in his empire. And so Constantine, because of his agenda to advance his empire, well, he was concerned about the controversy because the church would function in a way that would serve his purposes and agenda. And so he was concerned about the bickering. Although he wasn't in, interested in the spiritual ramifications of the debate, he was only interested in putting a stop to the bickering so that there can be ecclesiastical peace. That's his purpose, not theological. His purpose was for peace. His purpose was for the advancement of his empire. And so when this council was set up by Constantine, what did he do? What did he do? with the bishops and the other theologians. Let's read from a short history of Christian doctrine. For the first time in its history, Christianity 
in the Roman Empire was no longer the persecuted religion. Remember the first three centuries, it was a persecuted religion until uh, Constantine came and signed the Edict of Toleration and Constantine even used Christianity as a big part of his empire, right? And so he put a stop to the Christian persecution and one would think that's a great blessing, but it turns out it would not be a blessing after all. Why? Well, let's keep reading. From purely uh, external point of view, the change in the situation was evident to the bishops in the fact that they no longer needed to move about secretly, nor did they have to use a normal means of travel to visit one another. They now had the privilege of coming to the council by means of transportation provided by the state, which means uh, which were intended to use by ranking state officials. At Nicaea, the emperor provided a lodging uh, for the bishops in his palace. It was there too that the discussions took place and in the presence of the emperor at that, it is understandable if the bishops show their gratitude by generous efforts to oblige the emperor. In the course of the long discussions which took place in Nicaea, the emperor intervened personally several times. And so when Constantine called for a council to bring all these bishops together, what did he show? He showed hospitality, provided lodging for the bishops in his palace. He was basically rubbing their backs. He was up to something. What was that? Well, it was understandable. It's like uh, you do something for me, I do something for you, right? It's the reciprocity principle. So here's Constantine, an emperor, doing something nice uh, for the bishops. And so the bishops, well, of course, they would easily, they would want to oblige to whatever the emperor wants them to do. And sure enough, the emperor, he has something in his mind. He has an ulterior motive for why he gathered uh, these theologians together. What was that? Not the Bible, but the, uh, the book says that the emperor intervened in the long discussions that took place there in Nicaea. I wonder what he had to say. I wonder what was in his mind. Let's read the handbook of the Christian, uh, the history of Christianity. The emperor himself presided over the official session. That's amazing. The emperor, who have no understanding of theology, let alone biblical theology, he presided the official session. Can you imagine that? Not only that, and it was he who proposed the reconciling word, homoousios, Greek for of one essence, to describe Christ's relationship to the Father. Though it was probably one of his ecclesiastical advisors, Osius of Cordova, who suggested it to him. And so when he would intervene during those long discussions and debate, he even presided over an official session. And as he did so, he introduces his concept, right? What is that? Homoousios. What does that mean? Of one essence. He introduced the idea that Yahusha and Yahuwah Son and Father have the same essence, that they're co-equal, but is homoousios. Is that biblical? Is it even biblical to say that the Father and the Son have the same essence? Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn 
of all creation. They're different. Yahuwah, creator. Yahusha, created. Firstborn of all creation, different substance. Hebrews chapter 2, 6 to 9. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Yahushua, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Are they of the same substance? No. When Yahushua was created, he was created a little lower than the angels. Yahuwah, creator. Yahushua was created, although he was created a little lower than the angels. What does the Bible say? Yahuwah crowned him with glory and honor. How else are they different in essence? Luke 24, 39, behold my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have Yahusha. He has flesh and bones. Yahuwah is spirit. He has no flesh and bones. Different essence. Maybe one might say, well, Yahusha is in heaven now. His essence has changed. He is now the same essence as Abba. Is that true? First John 3, 2, beloved. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Bible says we will be like Yahusha. In what sense will we be like Yahusha? Philippians 3, 20, 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Yahusha Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that they will be like his glorious body. And so still different essence. Yes, Yahusha's body will be transformed. Our bodies will also be transformed, but it's still a different essence from the essence of Yahuwah, who is spirit, who created all things. This is why homoousius is not true. It's not a true osseous. It's not biblical. It contradicts the Bible because Yahuwah and Yahusha are different. They are distinct. And so when uh, Emperor Constantine introduces this, many people, of course, were pressured to accept it because after all, it's from the emperor, right? He's the emperor. And they're just theologians. They're subjects to the emperor, because for the longest time, Christianity was persecuted. Now he comes an emperor who was favorable to Christianity. We better do something for him. He scratched our back. We better scratch his back. And so what happened when the council could not agree on the debate uh, from the book Challenge of a Liberal Faith? The council could not agree. And after two years, impatient at the delay, the emperor Constantine appeared and addressed the assembly, ordering them to agree on the divinity of Christ. How could the emperor claim divinity if the saviors was denied? And so the emperor eventually, he appeared and addressed the assembly, not the assembly of Yahusha, a different assembly, right? And so there were a group of people, the theologians, and he orders them to, on the divinity of Christ. In other words, 
Emperor Constantine wants them to declare Yahusha to be God. Why? Well, if Yahusha, who they worship, is not God, well, then it would be ludicrous if the emperor would be made deity, right? How can he be divine if Yahusha himself is not deity? And so for his own self-aggrandizement, he wants that the, the people agree to make Yahusha God so he can be divine, right? And so that's his ulterior motive. That's what he wants. And so what eventually happened? Thus, for example, it was not until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea that the church defined for us there was an article of faith that Jesus is truly God. And so after a lot of bickering, a lot of fighting, a lot of controversy, and take note, their controversy is not even based on a biblical debate, but a debate in Greek theology, trying to explain who Yahusha is. If you want to know who Yahusha is, go to the Bible. But they did not go to the Bible. They simply focused and centered their debate on Greek theology. And so what did emperor after this, after it was declared in the Council of Nicaea that Jesus is truly God, what also did Emperor Constantine insist upon uh, from the book, The Jesus Establishment? This is what happened at Nicaea some six weeks after the council opened on June 19, 325. Emperor Constantine insisted. And when the emperor insists, you better comply. Insisted that all bishops who had been present should endorse a new creed that confirmed Christ as God and condemn Arius. Anyone who did not sign this document was to be excommunicated and exiled. So they drafted the creed, right? The Nicene Creed, where it teaches that Christ is God. And so for that creed to pass, it has to bear the signatures of all these bishops. But the bishops were all forced to sign it, to endorse it, because if they were not to sign it, what would happen to them? They'd be excommunicated and exiled they would not want that to happen right because after all that's like the book of life i don't know <laughs> they don't want to be removed from the registry they're afraid for their life because emperor constantine is threatening them and so when this became an official creed those who defied it how are they regarded as let's read the emerging church once this Nicene Creed had been publicly signed by all the bishops and promulgated by Constantine, it became the official creed for all Christians to deny, take note, to deny the divinity of Christ in any way was to put oneself outside of the Christian community and was a crime against the state. Not only did they make Yahusha officially Christ or uh, officially God, not only did they come up with that decree, they even um, came up with the law that it was a crime against the state to defy the divinity of Christ. And so eventually, when you think about what happened with the church, you would think that this was a victory for Christianity, right? That when emperor came to the scene, liberating the Christians from their persecution, making them a national religion of the empire, you would think it was a victory for the church. But when you look at it in retrospect, what really happened from that book, The Jesus Establishment, the victor at Nicaea was not the church, but an emperor who believed in the sun god as one of several deities. 
and who did not mind twisting Christianity to conform to his own ideas. Remember, first and foremost, Constantine was a pagan. And he served a Persian god. He believed in the sun god. He had several deities. He had his own pagan beliefs. And he wanted to unite everything in his empire. That's what he liked to do. Syncretism. Mix ideas together. This is why you have the mixed pagan Christian holidays. Like Christmas. Like Easter. That is the product of mixing pagan ideas, and biblical principles. And so the true victor was not the church. It was the emperor Constantine. However, it wasn't enough to make Jesus God. To complete the Trinity formula, someone also had to be God. What was that? The Holy Spirit. And so in 381, thus, for example, it was not until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, that the church defined for us that it was an article of faith that Jesus is truly God. In 381, at the Council of Constantinople, it was defined that it is an article of faith that the Holy Ghost is God. So the Holy Ghost becomes God much later on, right? In 381 AD. 325 AD, who became God? Jesus. 381 AD, who became God? Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. And so now they can put the Trinity together, the unity and Trinity together, and they put together the formula of the Trinity doctrine. In one God, there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so fast forward to the sixth century, you now have the Trinity, right? What law was passed? The most successful was the, the great emperor Justinian, the sixth century, who for a brief period regained much of the Roman Empire. The other great achievement of the emperor Justinian was the gathering up and sorting out of the laws of the Roman Empire into one system called the Code of Justinian. Part of this law had to do with the Christian religion in the church. The code says that any who refuse to believe in the Trinity and any who repeat baptism shall be put to death. And so after several hundred years, when Emperor Justinian comes to the scene, he puts together what is called the Code of Justinian. And those who refuse to believe in the Trinity, according to the Code, well, they have to, they're going to be put to death. Do you see why uh, it was embraced by so many so fast? This is a major falling away. Because when you think of the Trinity doctrine, it violates many of the commandments and the principles of the Israelites. This was no longer monotheism. This is polytheism disguised as monotheism. A clever, clever use of the deceptive tactics of the devil himself. This is why many people ended up believing it. But when you compare it to pagan ideas and beliefs from James Bonwick in his book, Egyptian Belief in Modern Thought, it is an undoubted fact that more or less all over the world, the deities are in triads. If you study ancient religions, the deities come in trees. This rule applies to Eastern and Western hemispheres, hemispheres, North and South. Further, it is observed that in some mystical way, the triad of three persons is one. 
The first is as the second or third, the, the second as third, as first or third, the third as first or second. In fact, they are each other, one and the same individual being. The definition of Athanasius who lived in Egypt applies to the trinities of all heathen religions. And so the Trinity, the Trinitarian God is not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is only one, not many, not three in one. The concept of a Trinitarian God is a pagan belief. And so to uphold a Trinitarian God, we break a lot of the commandments. Do you remember the Ten Commandments of Yehovah? What was the first commandment? You will have no other gods except for who? Yahuwah, right? Not Yahuwah and Yahusha and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says you only have one God who is Yahuwah. That's like the first command, right? And then you shall not create an idol or an image for yourself. You will not serve any other gods except for Yahuwah. And so when you look at the commands, like the two commandments were broken because of Trinity. So Trinity, well, basically that's an idol. That's a false god. And so this was a big monument for apostate Christianity, a big monument that had to be removed. But you know what? Ever since it was established, this mountain of a doctrine called the Trinity, it remained in force. In fact, even today, right up to today, the Catholics and the Protestants, what do they say? Well, maybe they won't kill you anymore if you don't believe the Trinity, but they will say you're a heretic and you will not receive everlasting life. You don't have to believe in baptism. You don't have to believe in the other teachings of Christianity. But if you don't believe in Trinity, you're a heretic. You're not going to be saved. You see how it's an essential Christian doctrine. It is their core belief. Their core belief is the Trinity. And for centuries, thousands of years, the Trinity has been enforced. It is Christianity. Christianity is Trinity. Trinity is Christianity for the longest time. However, Yahuwah Abba has plans for restoration. Because that's what he does, right? When people fall from the truth. When people deviate from what is right, Yahuwah sets in motion the work of restoration. So restoring who the true God is, that is part of Yahuwah Abba's plan. In fact, it's a major plan. Think about it. To restore the true God, the teaching about the true God. Is that a big deal? That's a big deal. Because that's the core doctrine, Trinity, right? It's a big deal because it represents the first commandments of the Ten Commandments. This is why in Yahuwah Abba's plan, who would be the one to restore that? In the prophecy, who would be the one to restore that? Let's read the book of Isaiah 41, 5 to 7. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer spurs on him who strikes the anvil. He says of the welding, it is good. He nails down the idol so it will not topple. And so here in this prophecy, Yahuwah Abba is mocking the people there in the islands, the ends of the earth. He's mocking those 
who believe in idolatry or who have idols. Trinity is an idol because it's a false god. And so here the Bible says the idols tremble. Why? Because Yahuwah has plans for restoration. He will remove the false ideas about who God is. He will remove idolatry. And so the people in the islands, although they were afraid, they kind of console each other and they say to each other, brother, be strong. It is good. He nails down the idol so it will not topple. And so the different religions in the Philippine islands, because when we talk about islands of the sea, we know it's prophecy pertaining to the Philippine islands of fear. And so in Ophir, there's going to be a revolution that will take place. A removal of this false belief about who God is. The idolatry that is in the Philippines will be removed. And how will Yahuwah Abba do this? Why are the people afraid? Let's read Isaiah 41, 8 down to 10. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What will Yahuwah Abba do to remove the idolatry, the teaching of the Trinity that was shared by many religions occupying the Philippines during that time? Bible says he will call a servant. He says, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. This servant will be an instrument of Yahuwah Abba. What does Yahuwah Abba say to him? I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We know this prophecy well, right? If we came from Iglesia de Cristo, we know this pertains to Brother Felix Panalo. And this is where I believe his work, because I believe there are two major works, two major works that was given to Brother Felix Panalo. His, this is the first major work. There's another one. We're not going to discuss it today. But in the prophecy, there's another major work he used to do. But yes, this one, this one is a major work. Why? Because it involves who God is. The Trinity, the pagan belief about God that was persistent throughout the ages, it had to be toppled. But to do that, he would require the services of a, a messenger who will be his instrument and what kind of instrument will he be? Let's read Isaiah uh, 41, 14 to 15. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says Yahuwah, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You know, brothers and sisters, that doctrine concerning Trinity, like what we mentioned earlier, it's like a mountain of a doctrine. It's immovable. The uh, Catholic Church will not remove that from their core beliefs. That's their number one core belief. The Protestant churches, they will not remove that from their core belief. That's their core belief. Both of them shook hands and claim and proclaim the Trinity for the longest time. I mean, there are many points of disagreement between the Catholic Church and the Protestant religion, but these two mountains of religions 
Their mountain doctrine, their monumental doctrine is what? The Trinity. The Bible says there's going to be someone called Worm Jacob. Why is he likened to a worm? Because Yahuwah will use him in a powerful way. And how does Yahuwah Abba in this prophecy show how this miracle will take place? Even though he is one man, even though he is likened to a worm, what will happen to the mountains? It will, he will thresh the mountains and beat them small and make them hills like shaft. These doctrines of the Trinity, I believe first and foremost, those mountains represent the doctrine concerning the Godhead or uh, of Yahusha being God and the Trinity. And when we look at the preaching function of Brother Felix Y. Manalo, one of his signature teachings is the preaching against the Trinity, the preaching against the idea that Yahusha is God. In fact, it is so complete. It's so complete what Brother Felix Manalo preached against the Trinity and against the teaching that Yahusha is God. We welcome any questions, any questions that people have concerning the idea that Yahusha is God. This is why, like what we mentioned to you last week in our BHP, if you have any biblical-based beliefs, biblical passages, which suggests to you that Yahusha is God, which suggests to you that the Trinity is true, let us know about it. Let's discuss it because we can guarantee every possible, every possible doctrine that has been presented it has been destroyed by the teeth, the word of Yahuwah Abba. The mountain of Trinity has been destroyed by the preaching of Brother Felix Y. Manala. What else proves? That the major work of Brother Felix Y. Manala as a messenger of Yahuwah Abba is to destroy the Trinity. Isaiah 43, 5-7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Brothers and sisters, we know this prophecy well. This is about Yahuwah's work of bringing together the exiles of Israel. This is the work of Yahuwah Abba in gathering the Ophirians, the remnants of Israel. And we know this, was, this took place in the islands of the sea in the Far East during a time called Ends of the Earth. This was fulfilled, the religion where we came from. But we know this movement, this work of Yahuwah Abba will be completed how will it be completed? The Bible says eventually everyone is going to be called by my name. We studied this prophecy before. We know that pertains to the name that Yahuwah God created for his glory, the name of Yahusha HaMashiach. But take a look at the work of Yahusha, the work that was given to Brother Felix Manalo and the fruit of his labor. We, we, including and especially those who are called by his name. Isaiah 43, we read 5 to 7. Let's read now verses 10 down to 12. You are my witnesses, says Yahuwah, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahuwah. 
and besides me there is no savior i have declared and saved i have proclaimed and there was no foreign god among you therefore you are my witnesses says yahuwah that i am god do you see the connection between you the work that was given to brother felix waimanalo and the work of the assembly today it's the same because it's a major work an ongoing work what is that we have to be witnesses to this truth of Yahuwah Abba. What is that? The Bible says you are my witnesses. Says Yahuwah. That you may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. What does that mean? That he is the only true God. Besides him there is no other God formed. And there shall be no one after me. This is why the formulation of the Trinity doctrine. Consisted of formulating or forming Yahusha as God, forming the Holy Spirit as God. But Yahuwah says that he's the only one. And so this is the work also of the assembly of Yahusha. This is why we proclaim this belief. We do not proclaim the Trinity. No, we proclaim the truth of Yahuwah Abba. Because this is what he wants us to do, to preach the word of Yahuwah Elohim. One of which is to preach there's only one true God. It is Yahuwah. And this is even more clear when we remove L-O-R-D. You notice that? It becomes clear when you remove L-O-R-D. Because it specifies the name Yahuwah. Who's Yahuwah? The Father. And so here, there's no more excuse. When you look at it from this point of view, when we have the understanding of the name, Yahuwah is different from Yahusha. Yahuwah, not Yahusha is the only true God. No other God is formed before him, nor shall there be after me. And so we believe Brother Felix Manalo, as a messenger of God, one of his chief functions is to remove, is to destroy, to turn the mountain of a doctrine called the Trinity into shaft. And this is also the work that we are going to do. So we do hope, brothers and sisters in the faith, that you will take the time. You can go and ask your favorite pastor. You can go and look at the internet and look for doctrines, look for biblical passages that teaches that Yahusha is God and give it to us. We will discuss those passages in detail so that we can know for certain, indeed, this work of Yahuwah Abba is the true work and reveals the work of Yahuwah even during these last days. This is our lesson, brothers and sisters. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, yes, merciful Yahuwah Allahim, thank you so much for blessing your people today. Yes, thank you for giving us your truth about yourself yes, and about your beloved son. Amen. We worship you as our only true God. Yes. Help us to uphold this doctrine because yes. we know we will face opposition persecution yes. because mainstream christianity yes. teaches the trinity help us to stand our ground yes. as we proclaim this truth loving mashiach yahushua yes. thank you so much we worship you you are the son of the living god yes. our mashiach who died for us we worship you now and forever yes. remember our voices remember who we are and when you appear in the sky once again, yes, may you bring us to yourself that we can enjoy life everlasting Amen. that you have promised to your servants. 
Father, thank you for blessing your people. Bless the work of the assembly. Help us to prosper in all things for the glory of your holy name. We ask and beg everything, loving Abba, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.